From Real Ghost Stories Online.com. It's another episode of Real Ghost Stories Online. I'm Tony Bruski along with Jenny Bruski. And of course, we are looking for your calls, for your emails, your ghost stories. You can call in anytime, toll free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 855 853 4802 is the phone number. Or you can also write in on our website, realghoststoriesonline.com. Click on the Tell Us Your Ghost Story button. And share your story with us. More stories we get, more shows we can bring to you. And the way people find out about us is by you sharing a little bit of love and uh, telling a friend about the show. Giving us some likes, giving us some stars there on iTunes or Stitcher or YouTube. That all helps us grow. More subscribers, more listeners, more shows, better shows for you. That's the equation. That's how it works. Welcome, Jenny Bruski. Hello, how are you? I am doing uh, peachy keen. Good. Peachy keen. I think keen is a word that should be used more often. I like swell. I think swell is underused. Swell's not bad. No, swell's pretty nice. Keen and swell. Mm -hmm. And is it often or is it often? It's often. I was taught the T is silent. See, I I was brought up with with often. Mm -hmm. And as an adult, I started putting the T in there. Why? I don't know. I just thought maybe it would sounded better. Often. No. I think it's supposed to be often, but I'm not sure. Hopefully somebody will let us know. <laughs> I think it's one of those words where you sh- that, I don't know if it's used somewhere, then you start picking up and changing it. Just like the word literally. People use that one way too much, including myself. You know why I do it? I started doing it after watching Rob Parks, Lowe. And, yeah. Parks and Rec, the Rob Lowe character. Yeah. I think that's what in, in, uh, increased literally being used. Mm-hmm. And the T. I never said it so with it much that it was, it was just literally. Nobody now, says it quite like he does. No, it's literally, and I hit the T. I know. So it's one of those things. I don't know. It's, it's like shows I watch, I pick up their dialect. If I started watching a lot more Dallas, I'd start talking a lot more Southern. you start country. talking like me. I would. I don't talk near as Southern as yeah. I used to when I first moved up here. Everybody made fun of me. You think ghosts uh, who speak different, who spoke different languages in life, can communicate uh, with ghosts who who were speaking a different language? Can a Spanish ghost speak with an English ghost? I don't know. Do they, or would they still not understand the translation even in the afterlife? That is hard to say. I don't know. Maybe there's some kind of telepathy going on at that point. I wonder how many uh, EVPs there are that are being picked up in other languages. That's an awesome question. I never thought of that. Yeah, we focus on English ones, obviously, but you got to think that there's other language EVPs going on out there that people are reviewing. Sure. I would think. I would think so. Yeah, it'd be an interesting one. And then what are they saying? You know, And I wonder if there's a certain language that comes across better in EVPs or if they're all just kind of as garbled as, as the English ones. You know? Oh, I don't know. Just a thought. Just uh, you know, one of the many things that we think about here as we talk about ghosts. Got a uh, a reply back from uh, from Kim Puffler, uh, and uh, this is a response to a previous episode of Real Ghost Stories Online about the uh, haunted hotel tragedy. Of course, this is the uh, uh, story uh, that we were talking about uh, in Kansas City, uh, which was the the Hyatt the Regency. Hyatt Regency. I always forget the name of the hotel. It's a Sheraton now. In the Crown Center area. Uh, She says, uh, I have a theory about the part you were questioning about whether some ghosts are experiencing the same tragedy after death where that person said it sounded like gurgling or maybe 
someone drowned. I don't think we go on to suffer. I believe souls are cleansed completely of everything negative and bad, anything considered sin and so on, because in order to enter heaven, we must be pure. And in saying that, uh, where would all that energy go? It's a fact that energy cannot be destroyed. It remains. So I think that is what is left over. Uh, shed away, and when it's strong or whatever, it results in the haunting and so on. It's just a thought, but I could never make sense of the fact that we are promised to be at peace after death, and it seems that once we move on, we forget a lot about our stay on Earth, and maybe that it's because most of it is left here, and only the pure souls we all started off with in the first place is the same way we all enter into heaven, and so on. I hope it makes sense. LOL. Can I call bullshit? <laughs> How so? Well, I if, mean, this is what she believes. Okay, so, so, and I, so I respect that that is her belief. But so you're so you're you're not saying you're not discounting her belief. You're expressing your belief. Now. Yes, my okay. belief is is I I don't agree, and the reason I don't agree is because you hear of ghosts often that are like the distraught mother of a lost child you know and they are constantly looking for that child even in death i consider that to be suffering and they're very much still suffering in death sure no i agree i mean there's so many stories um that we hear where the ghosts are clearly just not happy individuals and and they're not necessarily demonic either they're not necessarily out there to get whoever they're haunting they're just really sad figures it seems so i gotta i gotta agree with you jenny bruski uh over kim just because it's there's too many stories of sadness where it doesn't seem like these ghosts are are negative and trying to lure people in to hurt them they just seem like they're trapped in this horrific you know tunnel that they that they can't get out of you know and I mean, I, I kind of understand where Kim is coming from. I think she's, and I'm sorry, Kim, if I'm, I'm misinterpreting what you're saying, but I, I, what I'm gathering is that you're thinking that the, essentially, it's almost like the, the person separates and becomes two, is kind of what it sounds like. Like the negative is stuck here, and whatever is there is going to, the energy is going to go on and be negative, and the good's going to go away. I don't think it's that simple. I don't think you just go, oh, good's going away and we're going to be happy there and the bad's stuck and it's this energy and it means nothing because the negative stuff seems to have a conscious realm to it here i don't think we split in two is that what she's saying because i that's not what i interpreted and maybe i interpreted what she said wrong because i was thinking that she was talking about you know that they're cleansed of their their pain and anguish and they Mm -hmm. essentially move on to the next life and I know of far too many unhappy, mean ghosts <laughs> to believe that. Well, because she says it's a fact that energy cannot be destroyed. It remains. So I think that is what is left over. Right. Shed and away. I firmly believe, I mean, that's a principle of sure. science. And that's why yeah. I firmly believe in ghosts, because the energy has to go somewhere. Shed away. And when it is strong or whatever, it results in the haunting and so on. So, I, I mean, that's what I get. I get she's, I think she's thinking that the... You move on to heaven, but the energy that's here, if it's there's negative, it sticks around and is still negative. I don't, I don't think it's that. I think I think we remain with it, I know, whether it's here or not. Okay. I don't know. I, I think there's 
if there if there is a heaven to go to, I, I don't think it's as clear cut as you're dead, you're there. I think with the amount of ghosts and activity that goes on, I think there's some other gateway to get in there. If if that's where we go. Or if we're all relegated to be haunting things and heaven is what you make it. Okay, and I really don't think that your soul goes on to heaven and then you still have things going on. I, I agree with you. You're yeah. you're still with I think, it. Yeah. I think you have things that you have left undone, unfinished yeah. business things yeah. that need to be fixed before you can move on to the next step. Yeah, that's I, I exactly. I think this is just this is all relative. It's all opinion, obviously. Right, and these are our opinions. Sure. And, so. and Kim's certainly entitled to hers, and we're entitled to ours. But I don't think it ever separates. I think it's you know. If you're a ghost, you're a ghost for a reason. And if you're not a ghost and you move on to heaven or your hell or whatever it is, uh, you know, there's a reason for it. I halfway wonder sometimes if hell is being a ghost. Yeah. And you're just kind of stuck here and whatever the hell ends up happening here. I could see that, especially if, if you're one of those ghosts that's constantly like searching for your lost child or something like that that That, would be hellish i mean it's it's almost like a nightmare you know where it's one of those you can't get out of and you're just plagued over and over and over with the same thoughts that's hell you know it'd be like if you were stuck in uh if you died and you have to haunt a a furniture warehouse and all they do is show the golf channel on tv and you just have to sit there and watch Golf Channel 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Would that be your haunting day. hell? That'd be hell. Okay. I cannot watch. I, I love golfing, but watching the Golf Channel? Uh-uh. And it would be standard definition. Now, what about, really what about the ghosts of children? You know, mm-hmm. that that's one that I'm not sure. Because honestly, there's a lot of ghosts of children. And I'm not convinced they all did something bad enough to be relegated to the hell of haunting. Sure. Well, I mean, exactly. And that's where I don't know. You right. Know? That's There's too many questions that, yeah, I mean, it just, it leads to one question after another. I have no answers other than my own opinions. And then every time I hear a new story, it kind of almost changes the opinion because it's a completely different area. Oh yeah. So it's one of those things. The phone number to call. If you have a real ghost story is 855-853-4802-855-853-4802 for your real ghost story. Let's go to a letter. This one comes into us from Benjamin Mosley. Benjamin writes in, Hello, Tony. My name is Benjamin. I'm 32 now. But ever since I was a child, I've had a strong interest in the paranormal. However, unfortunately, most of my stories have occurred in and around my bed. Growing up in the house my grandfather built, I probably had a couple dozen events which could make you scratch your head and wonder. But the one that stood out the most was one that I could only describe as a mimic. I was 16 or so at the time. It was around lunch on a Saturday. I had a big math test that coming Monday, so I was in my room, sitting on my bed studying. My father was at work, and my mother and sister had just left to go to the store. Mom and Sarah had been gone for about 15 minutes on what should have been a 30-minute trip or so when I heard the kitchen door open and shut, and my mom yelled, Ben, we're home. I put the book down and went to help with carrying the bags, but no one was there. I looked out onto the carport, and her car was not there. After another 15 minutes or so, Mom and Sarah arrived back. I asked about if they had stopped by briefly on the way to the the gas station or had forgotten something, and she said no. 
After I graduated high school and finished college, I moved to Northwest Georgia, where I've worked for the past nine years or so. About five years ago, one of the spirits decided to make itself known. I was it was in the middle of winter. I just washed my sheets and was making my bed. After the sheets were on, I put the comforter on the bed, and I distinctly remember, without any doubt in my mind, tucking it into the foot of the bed. I then placed an unzipped sleeping bag on top of the comforter to act as an extra blanket. Later that evening, I went to bed. The next morning, I woke up around 5 a.m. and went to the restroom. Walking out of the restroom, I looked down to see the sleeping bag lying across the floor at the foot of the bed. This was not so unusual. Surely, I just kicked it off in the middle of the night, picked it up, and went to spread it back across the bed and get a couple more hours of sleep before the sun rose. But then I noticed the comforter was missing. I looked back at the foot of the bed and along the wall next to the bed, and nothing was there. I turned around, and there it was, folded up rather neatly against the wall behind me. Now, this unnerved me, but I put it back on the bed and went to sleep, figuring... I had to have taken it off the bed and must have folded it in my sleep. For the last chapter of my story, I should point out that I occasionally have sleep paralysis and night terrors where you cannot move and you have the distinct feeling of the presence of an intruder in the room and no matter what you do, you cannot will your body to move. The next event was completely unlike anything I had experienced before. A couple months after the comforter story, I woke up and rolled over and looked at the clock. It was only 1 a.m. and I heard something in the room. Then I heard a growl. At first, I said it had to be dogs outside the window. My bedroom is on the second floor. Then I could feel it walking across my bed. For a split second, I thought, crap, I left the garage door open and a stray dog was in my room. But I knew this wasn't the case. I sat up in my bed. The clock illuminates the room enough to see. I could feel the hot breath of this unseen thing blowing in my face as it growled. In a moment of pure bravery or stupidity and denial, I told myself there was nothing there and that it couldn't hurt me. I rolled over and said a prayer and closed my eyes. The next day I went back into bed and into the bedroom and sat on the bed. I had what can only be described as a conversation with the wolves. I said, this is my house, you're welcome to stay, but it is my house. You will follow my rules and you will keep to yourself. If this is a problem, then you will leave. I left it at that. That was the last incident I've had in my house. I have since joined a small local paranormal investigation group. When clients ask me how to get rid of their guest, I always tell them the story of me talking to the walls and how the house is their domain and they can simply will it out. I've got a lot more to share, but that will have to wait for another day. Keep up the good work. I really love the show. Thank you for your real ghost story. There you go. Story of someone willing the ghost away. I always get a kick out of how people will try and rationalize what's going on. Like, I must have woken up in the middle of the night and folded the comforter. I must have left the door open and stray dogs came in the bedroom, as if this is a common occurrence. I just, I, that part cracks me up because I know that you so want to rationalize what sure. happened and not believe it is what it is. Well, when you have something that's, you know, that extreme and you're feeling the breath of something on you in the middle of the night, you know... As extreme and crazy as it is, 
somehow at that moment in time, the idea of the door being left open and stray dogs entering your room suddenly becomes a rational thought. Yeah, I know. Because that's more comforting than the idea of some demonic ghost dog sitting on you drooling. I just wish if I could wake up in the middle of the night and sleepwalk that I could get chores done too. That That would be be great. It'd be kind of (laughs) cool. Get up in the middle of the night, you hear the, the vacuum cleaner going and uh oh she's just sleep vacuuming again yes exactly she's sleep doing the dishes that'd be that'd be a lot of fun i want to wake up in the middle of the night look out the window and see vampires floating outside the window no that's salem's lot and we're not watching that no (laughs) vampires don't really scare me i i never had a problem with vampires i kind of like them now after the twilight Movies. I never watched this. I, I never got into vampires. Mm-mm. I just, they don't really freak me out all that much just because to me, they're not like a real entity, you know, if you will. Uh, you know, is there a such thing as a real, true vampire? I, I don't really feel the risk of people turning into vampires. I don't know because I never had enough interest to research it at all. I think there's a serious mental illness going on if you're deciding you want to drink human blood. I think that may exist. You know, it's something screwed up there. But I don't think it's like, a, you know, where, where people are afraid of, of zombie outbreaks. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't really fear the undead coming out of gravestones or out of the ground. But I think that that's a lot more plausible thing to happen if there's some sort of horrible you know genetic bio outbreak Mm -hmm. where you could get that sort of a thing to happen or i think of that um guy on the freeway in miami that the bath salts yeah i mean essentially no he wasn't dead and came back to life but he was essentially acting as a zombie yeah i mean i could see that happening but vampires not so much that's why I, I just, they never really scare me. And like mummies, too. It's like, yeah, it's a mummy, you know? Uh, I don't know. I don't I don't even want to, I don't like mummies. I don't like to go see mummies in museums. Really? No. What don't you like about the mummies? Because there's all kinds of documented curses with the mummies and everything. Sure. That stuff scares me. Okay, I'll give you that. I, I agree. I, I, I wouldn't keep a mummy in my house. I wouldn't be like collecting artifacts that belong to someone who's been mummified or something of that nature. Um, I have no problem visiting and seeing a mummy, but I also don't fear the mummy coming back to life. No, I don't like in the old movies from the 30s where you see somebody essentially walking around wrapped up. No, I just worry about the curses and things like that. Sure, I get you. I think if you, I mean, I think you could get something, some bad juju on you if you, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, had some mummy artifact. Or a mummy, you know, hanging out in your basement, you know, as a party favor. Hey, look. Or on your ship. Or on your ship. Oh, yeah. There's a, uh, you were reading an article today. Yeah. About about the the theory of the Titanic uh, being cursed because it was allegedly carrying a mummy. Now, you tell the synopsis of what you read on this. Well, I read very little on it. Honestly, I just, I had never heard that conspiracy theory before. I'd heard several other conspiracy theories, but the the one that caught me was the fact that they said that there was a mummy on the manifest of everything that was being shipped. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, there's all kinds of theories that it was stored, you know, near the, the bridge or near Captain Smith's, 
room and, and all kinds of things like that. And, and it, it cursed the ship. And I just, I'd never heard about that. I don't even know if there really was a mummy on board, but if there was, that's kind of a, a fun thing to think about, I guess. It's a fun thing to think about. The cargo manifest, though, shows no mummy on board the ship. Okay. According to Snopes. Um, uh, the mummy uh, to which some of the stories that the um, uh, legends, I guess, began with uh, actually uh, were just an old coffin lid, not the mummy itself. Um, so, artifact, you know, the the mummy was not on board, it looks like, but it was like the... The what people would think about when they think of the mummy that gets put in the museum, you know, the the coffin itself with the you know the the head dressing and and all that on it. Okay, well, to me, that would be something enough to piss off the mummy if you take that away from it. Yeah, it could curse whatever that that I don't even know what that is. That the sarcophagus lid is that what that is? I didn't pay attention enough in history to know the terminology. And I'm, I'm probably totally wrong on that, but I think that would be enough if I were a mummy and. Somebody took that. Be an interesting one to research a little bit more and uh, and find out more about. Um, look at look into some guests on that one because that could go somewhere. Because there there is some tinge of truth to that story. Okay. Um, so it's another one of the interesting ones about Titanic. There's a lot of interesting things about Titanic, but that's for a whole other show. We should do a whole show about the ghosts of Titanic. You know. Yeah, or or the Olympic. That's a whole other story, right? Yeah, there. that's a whole other yeah. conspiracy theory yeah, too. Anyhow, uh, real ghost stories. If you have one, please give us a call eight five five eight five three forty eight zero two eight five five eight five three forty eight zero two to share your real ghost story with us uh, here on the show. Or of course, just write in on our website, realghoststoriesonline dot com. Uh, let's go to another letter. This one comes in to us from Lauren. Lauren writes in back uh, when I lived. And uh, I don't even know how to say the name of this town. St. Nyutz. Can you? Eh? Hmm? I think so. St. Nyutz. I'm just going to say it like that. I apologize for slaughtering the name of your village. Uh, <laughs> slaughtering and village never really no. work out together. A very strange thing happened to me and my friend, yet I'm glad it happened. My best friend's grandma had passed away about a month ago before this event occurred. Both me and my friend lived on the same road, so we would walk with each other every day. The routes, the bridge, which was longer but on more open roads, or the field, which was pretty much deserted apart from the occasional dog walker or another student. Because the field way was a lot quicker, we usually walked that way, but after this day, we never did again. We were on our way home from school. It was winter, so it got dark quickly. It was cold and there was a chance of a storm coming, so both my friend and I wanted to get home fairly quickly. However, as we approached the fields, my friend stopped. I turned around to see if she was okay. She just stood there, staring forward. Tears started to fill her eyes, but she blinked them away before I got to ask if she was okay. She firmly shook her head and said, No. I asked her what she meant, but all she told me was she didn't feel like walking that way. I was going to question her, but I didn't. I even had the thought to walk that way by myself, but I didn't. And I'm glad I didn't. I simply just shook my head and walked home the bridgeway. And by the time I got home, I was soaked. The next day was Saturday, and I went to visit my friend to make sure if she was all right. 
She explained to me how her nan used to always brush her hands through her hair to comfort her before she died, and how yesterday she felt the same sensation just as we were approaching the fields. She insisted that her nan was there warning her not to walk home that way, and if she was, I'd thank her because she probably saved our lives. It was a long after that day we found out that a young girl from a nearby school had been walking through the fields on her way home where she got stabbed. She survived, but was rushed to the hospital, and now has many injuries. Would you be afraid if a ghost of a beloved relative came back in like a benevolent way like that? I mean, if you saw them or, or they did something and you knew it was them, would you be scared? If it was something that was going to help me? Well, assuming so, that or just some quirky thing that they used to always do. No, I mean... I, I think it would depend. I, I think I would go with my instinct, because it almost sounds like what she did. She felt a certain way. She didn't necessarily see mm-hmm. the grandma sure. standing there going, hey. No, but one. she felt something she, yeah. that felt like what her grandmother used to do. And that instinctually told her, don't go there. Um, so if I was to feel that, I think I would, I would probably go with my instinct and turn around or do whatever that instinct was telling me to do, because it would feel very out of place. I think it's usually kind of the best thing to do sometimes is to go with your gut on on situations like that. Um, but I, I would be more freaked out if um, if if uh, a individual that I trusted or loved in life came back and was trying to screw with you, you know, or was suddenly negative. That would be disturbing. Like a, a like a demonic person. Yeah, like suddenly you're seeing the image of. Like my grandpa, you know, yeah. or something. If suddenly he came back with glowing red eyes, you know, I could see if we did it for just a second and just go, boo, gotcha, and then laughed really hard and then, you know, walked away with a <laughs> old fashioned in his hand and said, hey, let's go have a drink over here. You know, I could see him doing that and be like, look what I can do as a ghost. You know, I could see him doing that just to have some fun. But um, it would be much more disturbing if suddenly someone you trusted and loved in life came back as a ghost and was not that person's personality. Right. Right, I could so, see that. So, how about you? I think if they came back in a kind way, or you know, or the way they were in life, you know, I think I would be not afraid. I think I'd, I'd be a little surprised to say the least, but I don't think I'd be afraid. I think I could probably utter a few words to, to talk to them. Maybe. Would you want the entity? Uh, of the loved one to continue to hang out. If, if you had the option of having a a living relative ghost that you loved, that was a good entity that was just going to haunt you forever, or would you ask it to go away? Well, I wouldn't ask it to go away in a mean way, but I would try and let it know that it's no longer here and it needs to go on to the other side. But if it's already aware that it just wants to hang out. It just wants to be here? Yeah. Would you be cool with it hanging out, moving chairs around? No, I don't like my stuff moved anyway. That's my OCD, but I uh, I don't know. I think I'd be afraid in the back of my mind to be like, okay, is this really them? Who it is, yeah. Or is this a demonic entity? Sure. And I just am afraid of welcoming something, to something in that could be sure. bad. Yeah, I think that would be kind of freaky because yeah. it, it's very hard to know and you really don't know, you know. 
but it would make a great sitcom. Could you imagine that? I think it was a sitcom, actually. Really? Here's where I need our listeners to fill me in again on a television show. In the mid-90s, there was a TV show, and I could probably just IMDb this, um, where Dan Aykroyd actually starred in it. I believe Dan Aykroyd was in it. And it was about, like, a live-in ghost. I believe Dan Aykroyd played a priest on this show. Probably lasted, like, one or two seasons. I want to say it was on ABC. Um, And it was about people who moved into a house, and they had live-in ghosts, and the ghosts would just kind of do stuff to screw with the new residents. And, of course, you could see the ghosts on the show, but the other people who were living in the house didn't, you know, they played, they couldn't see the, the other actors on right. the screen. Um, and it was an okay show. I mean, I think it's one of those ongoing jokes that you can only do for so long, where after a few episodes you go, okay, the ghost is tipping things over, the other people can't see it, ha ha. You know, it's just like how the Michael J. Fox, you can only play, you know, the joke on Parkinson's for more than three episodes before it just gets a little bit old. You finding anything over there? I'm not. Everything that comes up with him has to do with Ghostbusters or a paranormal show that he did. I'm not finding anything. Dan Aykroyd, sitcom, Ghosts. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's going to be hard to find anything related to Dan Aykroyd. Not Ghostbusters. Television. Was it Soul Man? I don't know. I believe it was Soul Man. And I may, I may have two. I think I might just have two sitcoms mixed up that were around on the same time. Maybe this was not the one where he was the ghost, or there was a ghost. I, I, I honestly think I might have them mixed up. But there was a sitcom like that. Soul, Soul Man was a short-lived American sitcom on ABC in nineteen ninety-seven, starred Dan Aykroyd, where uh, he was a priest. Um, but yeah, I don't think there's anything about ghosts in there. There was a a show about ghosts that was a short-lived sitcom around that same time. Fill me in if anybody remembers what it was. Be a good one to, to YouTube and see uh, see what it was. Uh, let's go to another real ghost story. And by the way, if you have one to call into us, you can do it 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 855-853-4802. You've got like 10 minutes now to leave your real ghost story uh, on our uh, on our service there, and we'd love to hear it. So go for, go ahead, go nuts, and tell us uh, your story in depth. 855-853-4802. Next letter, it is coming in to us from Jamie. And Jamie writes in, Per your haunted nursing home show request, I'm going to tell you my story of a doppelganger experience. You may use my first name, but I'll change the name of my former partner, and that of her brother to keep this story anonymous. Here it goes. My ex-partner Tina and I were alone at night. Tina's brother Kurt was at work, and I was on the computer in the office, and Tina was watching TV in the bedroom. As was customary at a certain time of the evening, I heard a key in the front door lock. The front door opened, and Kurt sighed loudly as he entered the house. I heard the jangle of his keys as he placed them on the table, then I heard his bedroom door close behind him. A few minutes later, Tina went out to the kitchen to make herself a snack. She was making quite a bit of noise in the kitchen, and I was concerned that she would disturb Kurt. 
Kurt drank and had a nasty temper, so he often gave us a problem if his rest was disturbed as his bedroom was right off the kitchen. I ran out to the kitchen to remind Tina to quiet down because her brother was home. She looked at me strangely, then looked at the clock. He's at home. It's 11.30. He doesn't get home until around midnight. She was right. That was his usual routine. I told her when I heard that she said she'd heard it too, but thought it was me. Suddenly, we both, we both heard noises from Kurt's bedroom. We froze. Staring at the closed door, there were clear noises of shuffling and movement in that room. Upon glancing at the kitchen table, however, we noticed Kurt's keys weren't there. Neither were his cigarettes. Then, the breathing started. It was so loud, it was as though somebody was breathing heavy into a microphone. The sound was coming out of surround sound speakers all over the house. Tina went outside to see if Kurt's car was in the carport, but it wasn't. That's when we started to panic. What was going on? We didn't know if we should leave, knock on the door, call the police, or what. Why would somebody break into a house, just go into a bedroom, and breathe loudly? We went outside the porch and tried to convince Tina that Kurt must have gotten a ride home or something, and that it was him making the noise. She didn't believe it. Kurt was a creature of habit. If he was home, his keys and cigarettes would be on the table. Simple as that. At this point, I said, If Kurt pulls up right now and it's not him in there, I'm going to scream. He did. I did. Both of us in our 30s went yelling down the porch and told Kurt what was going on. He went into the house as calmly as any former military man, picked up one of the two swords displayed on the fireplace, walked into his bedroom to confront the person. Nobody was there. Nothing was touched. We didn't see Kurt, but we both heard him. We heard the exact same routine, keys in lock, loud side, keys hitting table, shuffling movement in the bedroom, and the supernaturally loud breathing. It was as though a part of his energy was going through his usual routine without his body being there. It was one of the strangest experiences of my life. Thank you for sharing my story. I love your show. Keep up the good work. Jamie. So what's the difference between a doppelganger and when you just see the ghost of somebody that's alive? Um, that's a good question. Is a doppelganger... Am I saying that right? Yeah. Okay. Is that like when it's almost like they... It's like they they have a twin, you know, and all of a sudden the twin is there, but they don't really have a twin? Yeah. Uh, essentially, it's... And there's stories we've had in here of, of people interacting in great detail with the doppelganger, um, not just hearing um, and, and you know, feeling the energy, but um, just straight up interaction. Uh, in fact, one of them had sex with the doppelganger, <laughs> thinking it was his wife. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so it's... Uh, I don't know what you would say the, the difference is of I think with um, the the energy thing um, where it's what was the term for it are, are you astro astral projection yes where the astral projection is that's where I think you can literally tell or think it's a ghost uh-huh. um, it's you know going through a wall or it's physically disappearing in front of you. Um, and it's doing ghost-like things, but it has the presence and the appearance of someone living. A doppelganger is something that does not disappear. It appears to be completely living. Okay. Is that a, de- a demonic force that does that? I don't know. Um, the 
stories that we've heard of the doppelgangers never really seem to have a whole lot of malicious intent. Um, the story that we had, um, uh, I don't know, probably about 20 episodes ago, there was uh, a gentleman who wrote in and said that his wife was on a business trip and uh, they were out to uh, to dinner. And I, 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 I don't recall all the exact details, but something to the effect of they were out to dinner... Um, Went out to dinner with friends. She came home early um, for whatever reason. And he was shocked because he was expecting her you know, back two days later. She came home, went out to dinner with friends. It was his wife. Mm-hmm. But she was very quiet at the table. Okay. At the dinner table with the friends. And the, everybody just kind of thought, no, oh, maybe she's just you know jet lagged or something. Sure. But interacted enough to seem like this was in fact her just kind of out of her element so nothing too concerning especially after a trip you know some people are just kind of out of it a little bit um got home they had sex um next morning wakes up the wife's gone and he's confused as to what is going on Mm -hmm. where is the wife um the wife calls later that day at the airport why aren't you here to pick me up okay and he's like, what are you talking about? You know, you you showed up early. You took a cab. You got home. We went out to dinner last night with friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't, you don't remember last night? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the wife's like, what are you talking about? Wow. You know, no recollection of any of it because it wasn't her. Did he fill in the friends on what had happened? I don't know if he did or not, but that's how that story kind of ended. Oh, wow. So... It was, it was quite a tale, you know, and I have to wonder if this was almost an urgent urban legend that was fed to us by someone. Um, but uh, it's a doppelganger story nonetheless. Yeah. And so that's what a doppelganger Well, is. that explains it to me. That's a good way to, it's a good way for me to think about it to understand the difference. Yeah. But pretty creepy. I mean, I couldn't yeah. imagine, you know. And then he's got to be sitting there wondering, was this just a strange person that looked like my wife that showed up? Wow. But I mean, who would do that? No. I mean, what are the odds of that? You know, that's, you know, that's where you really wonder if it is something paranormal. Mm-hmm. So that's that. That's a doppelganger. Okay. And that's the rest of the story. <laughs> uh, the phone number to call in, 85, you imagine Paul Harvey's ghost showing up? Do what? Paul Harvey's ghost. You know, and that's the rest of the story? Yeah, I, I know. Yeah. Paul Harvey as a ghost. Could you imagine Paul Harvey as oh, a ghost? Oh, I thought you said that some, there was... Okay, I didn't understand you. Okay. I thought you meant, like, somebody saw Paul Harvey's no, ghost. No, all of a sudden you just see the ghost in the hallway. Good day! Okay. You know, that'd be fun. It'd be interesting. Phone number to call, 855-853-4802. 855-853-4802. Or you can always write into us at our website, realghoststoriesonline.com. Click on the Tell Us Your Ghost Story button. Of course, if you're just sitting here listening right now for the first time and you've not done so yet, press subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to. You will be sure to get all of our episodes as we create them and you do not miss a single one. Next story comes into us from Paul. Paul writes in, This story is going to be a little bit different than my others. Usually I tell a little history of the area and then tell my story of my experiences. This time I want to tell you my experiences first because I do not fully know the history of this place before I experienced my encounter with the spirits of the asylum. Hmm. That sounds good. I mean, nothing quite as creepy as an insane asylum. 
As a very young child, uh, I in grade school, I joined Cubs, a younger version of Scouts. As a Cub Scout, we'd often go camping or have sleepovers at public buildings. This particular time, we stayed at the old asylum uh, in Amherstburg. At the time, we were told it was an old orphanage, which was also true. The building had been many things over the years. It had been part of Fort Madlin or Maldlin buildings for many, many years. It was probably also known as the Lunatic Asylum of the Fort. So we stayed there the night and all slept on the floor of the main level. The building resembles a very large colonial house of the pioneer times. It's a two and a half story brick house with old wood floors, many wooden windows and a steep old grand staircase. This house is broken up into many rooms. As an old house, it seemed harmless. So there were 20 of us Cub Scouts, the few leaders staying over the night. As a young boy, I did not have many nightmares. I guess I was a happy kid, but this particular night, I did. The night was not a good sleeping night. The house was filled with strange noises, creaks, and clunks. I guess this is typical of an old house, but the sound of running footsteps upstairs seemed to bother all of us, even the leaders. Several boys had trouble sleeping, and I can remember a few of them saying that boys were out of bed and running around. The leaders would do a head count with a flashlight and all would be accounted for. I can remember it wasn't until early in the morning that I actually got to fall asleep. Between the noises and the leaders getting up to check on the reports of kids out of bed, sleep finally came. But so did a disturbing nightmare. I dreamt that the house was full of kids that were wandering around confused, angry, and crying. They'd walk around as if trapped and stop to look at us, the cubs, sleeping. Many of them had bleeding eyes, vicious bruises on the sides of their heads, or black tongues. It was really a creepy dream. The next day, I slept all day once I got home. The visions of the kids in the asylum stayed with me for a few days, and then I eventually forgot about it. Many years passed, and I now am in high school. This is when I learned that the building was once an asylum wanted to check it out, but the building was closed to the public. They only opened on tours on special occasions. I did not dwell on it since there were many other things to investigate in the area. Well, more years passed, and I eventually got a job, wife and kids. Fifteen years passed, and I found myself back in Cub Scouts as a volunteer leader. My son was now a cub, and like the good old days, we did a lot of sleepovers. I was excited to hear that we were sleeping over at the fort. I thought the kids would love sleeping in the army barracks, and the whole trip would be good. Little did I know that we were not sleeping in the barracks. We were indeed sleeping in the asylum. This was mildly disturbing. Actually, quite the mind grinder. Instantly, a warning flag popped in the back of my head, but the gears had placed a thick layer of cobwebs between my memories and my mind. I'd forgotten the impact of the whole experience that I had as a youth. The minute I walked into the building, it all came back to me. The place was set out of time. It seemed time had not passed in here, and it was identical to what it was when I was a kid. Knowing more about the building this time, I was a bit freaked by the still air and the feeling of a presence and sensing that I had returned. Being an adult, I quickly swept away those thoughts and focused on the time at hand. So I had returned to the asylum. Now I was the leader and we had about 12 kids sleeping on the floor. Of course, the kids did not sleep. They heard the noises and were scared. 
someone must have let it slip that they were in an asylum. I wonder who that was. Well, the running footsteps were back, and other leaders started to comment on them. We did a head count on all the kids who were in their sleeping bags. Some of the kids said they saw other kids out of bed running around the halls. So as leaders, we took turns checking on the kids through the night. I have to admit, I was really unnerved when I found myself walking through the asylum halls and rooms at night with a little pocket flashlight. With every turn I looked, I half believed I would see the horrified ghost child. But I did not see anything, thank God, because my wife would have left me if I returned home without the kid. I did manage enough courage to go upstairs to seek out the source of the footsteps. The second floor had several small rooms with a dim moonlight flooding into each of them, casting shadows across the floors. The rooms were mostly empty, but all had a few items in them. A single chair, a table. They all had wooden floors and showing to the markings where a table once was, with legs of a bed. The second floor was eerily still. That's when I noticed that the running footsteps had stopped. I had a very cold chill and the strong feeling that I was the focus of attention. So I backed out slowly and returned downstairs. The other leaders asked me what I saw, and I told them the truth. Nothing. But none of them were willing to go upstairs on their turns to patrol the area. Needless to say, it was a long night, and I did fall asleep early in the morning, and I did again have the nightmares of the wandering kids with bleeding eyes and black tongues. When I woke in the morning, the daylight made the building feel peaceful. I quickly swept away the nightmare as a lingering fear from the nightmare that I had as a kid. I actually felt silly that I had gotten all worked up. Well, the Cub Scouts were in rough shape from the sleepless nights, and the kids were very groggy. Breakfast was being served outside at a picnic table. The conversation around the table was, of course, the creepy noises. I was barely paying attention to the kids' conversations when I overheard one of the Cubs complain about dreaming about kids with bleeding eyes. I think I nearly dropped the pancake I was flipping. More kids talked about having the same dreams. Not all the kids, but five or six, about half of the group. Even one of the leaders said he too dreamed of zombie-like kids. So this set my freak level quite high. I was glad once the day was over and the parents were picking up their kids. Of course, I was one of the last leaders to leave, and on the way out, I stopped and had a brief conversation with the groundskeeper. I actually did not know who he was or why he was there. He just appeared and started talking to us about the asylum. He asked if I stayed there overnight. I said yes, and he said, I'd never sleep in there. Of course, I asked why, and he said, too many bad spirits. I hear them running around sometimes when I'm here late in the afternoon. So I asked him, you believe it's haunted? And he told me, yes. He was about 80 years old. He said his great aunt was committed to this asylum as a child, and that is what brought his family to the area. He said when he came out of that place, she was never the same. His father, the aunt's brother, said she was like a zombie and often cried when she looked at the place, being that they had moved only a few houses across the street. He also told me that this asylum was one of the first to use shock therapy and lobotomies in Canada. He said the doctor was a forerunner of science and would perfect his practice on new patients. The doctor talked his grandparents into moving to the area to help their daughter with the promise of a cure through new science. The conversation continued as my awe 
of his words deepened with every syllable. He continued, he said that the whole asylum was shut down after only about 10 years because the town was so upset over the treatment of the troubled kids that chased the doctor out of town. The asylum was later converted into an orphanage and eventually surrendered to the town. Needless to say, the information from this nameless old man left me speechless and very troubled. A couple more years passed and I had forgotten again of the disturbing memories of the asylum. It was like a movie night that I was watching. Sucker Punch. The scene came up where they punched a steel spike in the brain of people through the eye socket. That's when I realized that this is what a lobotomy was. I finally, and finally, that's when it all came together for me. The kids with the bloody eyes were victims of a lobotomy. The bruises on their heads were shock therapy. The black tongues, well, I still don't know, but it all became a lot more real once it all added up. So I did some research. The asylum operated in the mid-1800s for only a decade. There were about 240 patients there there at one time. They worked as a free labor force. The patients ranged in age from 13 to 55, even a mix of male and females. They used hydrotherapy, hot-cold water submersion, shock therapy, lobotomies, and drug therapies to treat all kinds of mental illnesses. In my research, I'll have to say not much factual data is actually out there, but I was surprised to find conditions that they considered treatable for mental illnesses, especially in women. Many women that were locked up as patients were people that were perfectly sane. Examples are women who had gotten pregnant before marriage or overly active, irregular menstrual conditions, women that were attracted to other women, people who had medical problems like fainting or seizures, talking disorders or twitches and tics. Many people were were imprisoned for debt or crimes, were able to get an insanity plea so they could be treated and possibly released. Apparently, there's a list out there of all the inmates and their dispositions released or deceased. And there's very few that made the release list. I found this period of history the most disturbing as the instruments and infirmaries were very sanitary and wholesome appearing in intent. But the shady basements and reality were quite a different in a horror film sort of way. I've never heard of an asylum just for children. I believe that that would exist, but I've never thought about that being a possibility. I could see it, you know. I mean, you have, you know, you have orphanages and such that were, you know, not all always of the I guess greatest quality for I think the that's the nicest way you could put it. Sure, but I just think that a child, I mean, obviously the child has issues to be there, but mm-hmm. they're not going to have any understanding on being treated for anything. And obviously these were not treatments. These were barbaric mm-hmm. experiments. But I just, I think that would conjure up a whole lot of energy there. A little kid not understanding why that's going on to them. Yeah. I'm looking up the uh, asylum and, and there is... Uh, other stories out there online about this place. Um, it looks like Fort Mal- Mal- Madeline Malden. I think Malden is how you'd say it. M-A-L-D-E-N. Uh, it's in uh, Ontario, Canada. Abandoned by British Canadians in 1813. 
From 1859 to 1870 was a lunatic asylum. Uh, once again, it's uh, still standing to this day. It doesn't specifically specify it was a for children alone, um, or what uh, what time periods. But uh, that's yeah. It, it looks like a very dark and creepy building. Have you ever been in a uh, a former asylum? No, I haven't. No. Mm-mm. Do you have? Did you find some other interesting piece of information there? Oh, you- well, I found where somebody um, suggested that Bismuth is a or may have been in the past um, a type of medication that was given for insanity. And um, they claim that if it reacts with the sulfur or can react with sulfur to create a black residue on the patient's tongue. Okay. Well, there I think we may have just answered what the black tongue is. He didn't know that yet. And they said sometimes people experience this when they take Pepto-Bismol today. Black tongues? Well, that would would freak me out. um, You know, that's if if what I'm reading is legit, but there you go. There might be something to that. As an early kind of archaic medicine, that would explain. Well, there you go. That's the, uh, you know, I think as close to an answer as to what we're going to get about the black tongues that he was seeing uh, in the, the dream. So there you go, Paul. What's bismuth? That was the medication? Yeah, bismuth. Is this something that's... Is that the biz and mall? Pepto-bismol? I believe so. It's B-I-S-M-U-T-H. <laughs> Every time I take Pepto-bismol, I'm going to think of the children with the bruised uh, eyes and heads and black tongues. And the bleeding eyes. Yeah, that'll be great. That's everything I like to think. I don't think... I don't know the last time I took Pepto-bismol. When was the last time you took Pepto-Bismol? I remember that. I got really sick after I ate way too many stuffed mushrooms at Red Lobster as a child. <laughs> and my parents gave me some Pepto-Bismol because I was sicker than a dog. And I hadn't eaten pep- I hadn't eaten um, stuffed mushrooms again till like a couple years ago. Is it Pepto-Bismol for stomach aches? I, I don't remember. I think Tums, so. I think, I think it was to help kind of ease my stomach stuff that was going on. Take I, some Pepto-Bismol. I think so. I remember it was pink, kind of minty flavor yeah. stuff that they gave me. Yeah, I mean, sometimes kids would just take it because they like the flavor. No, my that was the only time I remember taking it because I was, oh man, it was bad. It's like Robitussin. I hated Robitussin. That oh, was like, take, that was good stuff. It's like the go-to medications of the 80s, Robitussin and Pepto-Bismol. Mm-hmm. And on a good day, you get Sucrets for a... Uh, oh, those a, are a just candy. Those are delicious. I don't yeah. think those do anything. No. No, no. They, they don't. They don't. They really, but but there was like that was like the one medication I liked. I also liked grape Dimetap. Yeah, I, I would call it grape medicine. It's like, can I have some grape medicine? You know, <laughs> I think I just got like over medicated just because I liked taking Dimetap. You know what? I remember when we got sick. Um, a lot of times I would get strep throat or have some kind of tonsil infection, and and we'd always go get a bag of Halls Halls mm-hmm. cough drops. And to this day, that's still like a comforting thing to me to have a Hall's cough drop, whether I need it or not. There's a uh, an asylum that I uh, I had a chance to to visit <laughs> like about eight years ago. It was in Traverse City, Michigan. Visit, and, and it's no longer an asylum. It's no longer an asylum. Oh, okay. They decided mm, this little asylum thing probably not the best of the you know. Uh, it uh, was the uh, Traverse City State Hospital. 
And this is one of the creepiest buildings you will ever see. Here's a here's a fine picture of it if you'd, you'd like to view. That's this is how it looks now. It, this is uh, it, it's been kind of redone a little bit uh, as far as paint. Yeah. Um, but when I went there, it was just going into the restoration phase. Mm-hmm. And a majority of the windows were still broken out of it. And they had, like, one restaurant in the basement. And it was a very high-end restaurant. But the creepiest thing about this restaurant... (laughs) it, it, It was... Weird on so many levels. You're going to eat, basically, in cells. Okay. High-end food. Okay? Mm-hmm. Tables are literally into the old cells. And you have your table against the ball, the wall and the, the brick wall. And you can see on the wall, there's still the metal plates that would have had chains connected to them. And you know damn well that these chains were probably connected to people. There's no way I could eat anything there. I mean, yeah. I'm not morally opposed to the fact that they're using this building, trying to repurpose it. But I don't think with all that energy, I could eat anything there. It was a weird experience. And that's a place I did get uh, quite a few weird vibes out of. Um, just, I mean, it is what it is. It was just plain weird. Now it's called the Village at Grand Traverse Commons. Wow. <laughs> Because, you know, it didn't just quite, it didn't really have the ring to it, like still calling it Traverse City State Hospital. No. (laughs) It doesn't quite have that, you know, rustic feel that you're going for. Uh, Yeah, but the history of that, uh, Northern Michigan Asylum was its name for quite a while. Uh, Traverse City Regional Psychiatric Hospital. Uh, The Kirkbridge Building of Michigan's... uh, Original four left the state. Uh, listed on the National Register in 1978. Uh, designated a historic site in 1985. And I think it was abandoned. Oh, it was closed in 89. Oh, my God. Wow. That's not that old. The way this building looked, though, I mean, the last when I ate there, so from 89 to about 2000 in. Six, 2005, it was empty. So that's a good 20 years of dilapidation right there. And it dilapidated pretty good in 20 years. Um, and it was just creepy as hell. Uh, tuberculosis, typhoid, uh, influenza, polio, all treated at this hospital. And now you can have a nice seared halibut dinner in one of the cells with a little bit of, uh, you know... <laughs> That it's just risotto such on the side. sick irony because you know that they were just being fed gruel. It is like the ultimate like have and have not thing, and it's just sick almost to think of the the torture that people were going through there. And now you're sitting there, you know, dropping 150 bucks on a dinner, and it's where so much misery occurred. It's just it's it's wrong. It is wrong. It's not like borderline wrong. It's just wrong. You know, I, I get the repurposing and such, but you know, here, here's a picture. Take it. Here's the, uh, I guess, one of the tunnels. Here's, see, these are the cells. This is where you eat. In there. See? This is exactly where it was. And over here on that wall is where you could see, you can't see in this picture, but this is a very long, narrow hallway. These were the cells. 
And they weren't very big. That is horrible. Yeah. I mean, these are like closet-sized cells. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. But hey, looks like a nice little... I think... I wonder if there's a hotel you can stay there. I don't know. <laughs> we'll have to visit someday. I, they got to have ghost stories there. And that's one for a future episode. If anyone knows about this place or any of the ghost stories, that's one to write in about at uh, Real Ghost Stories Online. We would love to hear uh, your ghost stories about it. Yeah, what do you got? Uh, according to WebMD, bismuth does cause black tongue. There you go. Pepto-bismol can as well in some people. Is it like a permanent thing? No, it's it's like a temporary thing. But if you're given that over and over, you're going to have a black tongue. Do you have a... Pepto-Bismol Addiction? Then you've got problems Jesus You've got a black tongue I can tell you're addicted To Pepto-Bismol He's got the black tongue Lay off the Pepto Alright There you go 855-853-4802 When you're done listening to the show Call in Tell us your real ghost story So we can share it On a future episode 855-853-4802 At Real Ghost Stories Online Click the Tell Us Your Ghost Story button And we may share it On a future episode Like us Share us Tell a friend about us that's how we get more ghost stories. That's how we bring the episode to you uh, as frequently as possible. From Real Ghost Stories Online. For Jenny Bruski, I'm Tony Bruski. Thank you for listening. Lay off the Pepto. <laughs>